welcome to the Dr. Cheryl Show, where I aim to help people with their mental health issues as it relates to depression, anxiety, and loneliness. Today, I have Dr. Julie Fraga, who specializes in women's health and wellness. She focuses on reproductive and maternal mental health issues, such as postpartum depression and anxiety. In her work, she helps clients explore and understand the many identity transitions, I will ask her what that means, that pregnancy and new motherhood can bring. How are you, Julie? I'm fine. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Thanks so much for being on. I've actually been really looking forward to asking you multiple questions that I even have. Um, But I want to start with infertility. In terms of are women experiencing this more, it feels like they are. It feels like I hear about it a lot. And if so, why? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know there was some research that came out from the Association of Reproductive Medicine, um, probably within the last couple months, I think their annual conference is in April, that shows a rate now that one in eight um, you know, couples is experiencing fertility concerns. Certainly, fertility concerns um, spans, you know, a lot of different things. That doesn't mean that one in eight couples are having to do kind of in vitro fertilization, um, but one in eight couples struggle to become pregnant within, you know, a certain time frame is my understanding. Um, when it comes to, you know, kind of why we're seeing an uptick in rates of infertility, my guess is that people are starting families later. And so, you know, I know I live here in San Francisco, which might be a little bit of an anomaly to the rest of kind of the middle of America, but certainly is probably similar to other urban areas like New York. And I happen to know, just working with a lot of new moms, that the average age of a first-time mom in San Francisco is 38. So, um, you know, when we look at fertility and we look at data, and I don't want to quote this kind of um, as a fact since I'm not a... OB researcher, but I know in the OB literature, the kind of standard message has been that fertility starts to change for women after the age of 35, although I've seen, you know, articles in news publications recently that have kind of challenged that number. Um, But if you take all those tidbits of information, I think that's probably why, you know, one correlation um, as to why fertility rates um, might be changing for, you know, people today. I'm so glad I asked you that because it felt like to me that that was likely to be the answer. Like, yeah, we're, we are getting married later in life. We are having careers. We're just postponing starting families. Um, and so one of the things that I personally experienced and, um, I want, I want to talk to you about is the guilt that women can feel. So, right. Everything from why did I wait so late or why did I put my career first? Or, um, you know, for me, I always say I, I, I had my first child at 33, but I wanted, I, we started at 30 and I would do anything for those three years back. You know, that's the the guilt that I feel inside. So I imagine this is something that comes up in your work with women a lot. And how do you help, how do you help explain to women what the role of stress might play in this and how do you help them with the guilt? Absolutely. That's such a wonderful question. And I think those are two feelings that come up for you know, many women and their partners, right, as they kind of navigate their own fertility journeys. I think one of the things women can feel so guilty about is that they have this misbelief that the stress in their lives, stress at work, stress through the fertility process, stress with, you know, whatever else is going on in their lives, um, 
maybe there's a family member who's ill, maybe there's some tension in, you know, the marriage, that that causes infertility and that's why they're not getting pregnant. And that mindset is just a setup for further guilt. And what I share is the science behind it. So I know there's been research um, and there's a great cognitive behavioral psychologist, Dr. Alice Domar, who's done a lot of research on infertility. She has a great book. What Dr. Domar has said, you know, in the things I've read is that, you know, stress is not, does not cause infertility. What happens is that going through infertility for any individual woman, for a couple is stressful. And so, you know, flipping that thought around can really open up perspective for a lot of women. Um, okay. I'm, I did not cause this. Um, and I still feel guilty. So, you know, part of the work then is, um, helping, you know, the woman to process and understand that guilt, um, because we all have our own psychological histories in terms of, you know, how we feel guilt, what it might trigger within us from our kind of, um, any past disappointments in our lives, anything that's unresolved. Um, and I think the most important thing to say is, you know, certainly there are like mind-body exercises and cognitive exercises that can certainly help women and couples navigate the symptoms and stress that arise during the fertility journey. And at the same time, um, my experience is there's a lot of really tender emotions that come up that really just need to be noticed and like, you know, um, held and acknowledged. And I think one of those big pieces is grief you know, what brings you to this point in your family building process, it means that you weren't able to have something that you envisioned. And so what's that been like for you? And I think it's so hard for people going through infertility to find any support because it's just something that's flipped around, I think, in our culture, right? Friends and family members can grieve along and they have empathy for you when they know that you've lost something that they've they know you've had. But it's very hard for people to empathize with people, not because they're bad people, when they're grieving something they don't have yet. I mean, it's just a totally different process. And I think that leaves a lot of women and a lot of, you know, um, couples going through the fertility process to really experience aloneness. And I just also want to say, you know, kind of along those lines, certainly for people, you know, um, gay and lesbian couples that are going through fertility process, they're not having infertility, right? They don't have fertility concerns, but their journey to parenthood is obviously different. And I think that comes oftentimes with, um, you know, certain feelings and certain feelings of aloneness that arise. Yeah. Um, because... Let me just you know, pause think, you for a second. Oh, yeah. You have so much good information that I just want to make sure um, <laughs> that, that the listener really gets this. Let, let me just, let me rewind to a few minutes ago, something you said that I feel like needs to be repeated. Stress does not cause infertility. I think that is a message that women who are experiencing anything around anything around infertility, anything around raising their families, anything. Um, it just needs to be said, um, particularly for those, what you were just talking about, for those around them. I think that inadvertently family members and friends make the woman feel like her stress is causing her infertility. Absolutely. Just relax, right? I heard mm -hmm. just relax so many times. You just need to relax. And so um, I just feel like that really, I want to say that again for people who just need to hear that. Um, I think that's so important. And then the other thing I want to say um, 
<clears throat> is you're talking about this grief process. Um, and so I, I, I want you to finish your thoughts on the grief process and then also link that to, um, sort of when they do get pregnant and then the, for the, for women who experience postpartum depression, because I think the grief process can, ha can, can look that way in postpartum depression as well when you didn't imagine that this was the way that you were going to feel. So mm -hmm. can you, can you say more about the grief process on maybe both ends of the spectrum? Sure. I think that grief probably arises for a lot of, you know, um, women and couples going through the fertility journey. Like I said, oftentimes for the, you know, woman, there's disappointment in her body that it didn't kind of, um, didn't show up for her in the way that she hoped it would. There's grief that she would become pregnant in the way that she imagined. And there's also added grief if there has been oftentimes, right, a lot of people, if they're doing um, IVF or IUI, they might do several rounds before they become pregnant. Maybe women have also had miscarriages, sometimes more than one. Um, so I think all of those losses really contribute to the emotional load um, of, you know, the infertility journey. Um, and in my experience, because there's such a longing for, to start a family, sometimes just where the woman is at in the process, that grief can't really fully be kind of delved into and noticed until after her baby arrives. Um, so say more about that. I mean, I just think that it's something that's so painful that women are just trying to, couples are trying to survive. You know, they're trying to survive. They want to be moving forward. Uh, grief is something that feels really icky. It kind of feels like it's going to hold you back. Um, oftentimes, I'll see women who come to me in the postpartum period, and I'll hear about their fertility journeys, and we'll make a connection that there were some, you know, residual feelings that never got processed um, during that time. And so that's why these feelings of sadness or guilt oftentimes with postpartum depression, I think, especially for um, women who've had struggles with pregnancy loss or during their fertility journeys, there's this immense shame and guilt because they put so much pressure on themselves that now that they have a baby, they should love every minute of it. Yeah. So can you just kind of like you teed up for us with the infertility in terms of the rising rates, can you talk about postpartum depression and how's that showing up for women in our country right now? And what do you think um, is, is contributing to that? Sure. That's a great question. Um, what a lot of women and their families do not know is that postpartum depression is the number one complication of pregnancy. Um, I am surprised as somebody who also works in a hospital setting. So I also do a postpartum support group at a hospital here in San Francisco. I also teach workshops for, um, you know, women when they're expecting as well as for their partners on kind of what to expect during pregnancy emotionally, how to prepare your partnership for parenthood. I am very surprised that I always kind of take a survey at the beginning of my classes and ask how many women know this. Maybe two women raise their hand. It's very alarming that something that's the number one complication of pregnancy, because it's not a medical concern, like maybe diabetes, falls off people's radar. Yeah, so. wasn't wasn't there sometime just earlier this year, I feel like a study came out, or it, I, I feel like I've been hearing, I've just been starting to hear about this in the last few months, and it's shocking, and I'm wondering, what do we do about it? Yeah, that's such a great question, and I think that, you know, there's a lot of, um, kind of changes being made now in terms of how maternal mental health care gets integrated into um, 
obstetric and gynecological care because that's the gatekeeper, right, for women who are going through, you know, even infertility, who are pregnant, who are postpartum, that there's a safety net there in terms of being screened, you know, for um, prenatal and postpartum depression. Um, and the other kind of, so that's one thing, right? Screenings, so screenings, need, that's what you're screen, saying is one thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. Is once you screen a woman, and if she does have a maternal mental health concern, what do you do with that information? So we really need, um, you know, mental health providers and support groups and places that medical professionals, those working in the birth world, know how to, you know, get these women connected to the next step of care. So let me ask you, you're in a, you're in a big city in San Francisco. So whether we're talking about a small city or a small town, what is, what is the access like to a postpartum, you know, depression support group? What is the likelihood that someone will even go to their doctor and be screened? What's the likelihood they will show up for these things? Like, how engaged, even when there are services, how engaged are people? And then if you're in an area where there may not be services, what do you do for those people? Yeah, that's such a great question. I know, um, you know, I recently wrote a story um, for the Washington Post about some new research that came out about postpartum depression from Northwestern University. And what the researchers found was very interesting. Women with the most severe postpartum depression are less likely to receive help. Mm. Um and, you know, I was really curious about that when I interviewed the researcher. And what he said is, obviously, when women are depressed, they have difficulty, they isolate, they might have difficulty making it to doctor's appointments. And so, you know, what the goal is to catch these women during the um, prenatal period so they can be connected to more robust services and kind of using this treatment kind of plan, his goal, you know, I know he said, you know, with the physicians he's working with at Northwestern is really to be able to predict kind of severity and how long treatment might take. So how long um, does treatment take? What is the process like for, let's say, a woman who is eight or 10 weeks postpartum? What is what does it look like, let's say, for the average woman? Yeah, I think it varies, you know, because it depends on maybe what um, what's coming up for her. But, you know, what I'd say is somebody who does a support group for women during the postpartum period, a support group definitely can be so helpful. I mean, time and again, what we hear is that this group helped me so much because it helped me realize I wasn't alone. I didn't have to say that motherhood was the best thing. You know, people really understood. So support group is one thing. Um, individual psychotherapy, you know, and there's um, great, you know, studies that show um, that cognitive behavioral therapy can be really effective to help women during the postpartum period, as can psychodynamic therapy, um, in particular, interpersonal process therapy, which looks more at kind of um, a woman's relationship pattern to herself, how that plays out in her life, how it might play out, right, it, even with a therapist. And um, when needed, I'd say medication, you know, yeah, sometimes needed. So what mm -hmm. are, so someone's listening right now, whether it's somebody who is a friend or a family member or, or an actual woman who's in her postpartum period, what are the signs and symptoms of postpartum depression? How do you know that it's not just, you know, maybe some baby blues or it's your hormones out of whack, which is, I think, the message that a lot of women get. What are the actual signs and symptoms they should be looking for? Yeah. Um, well, certainly you brought up something really important that I'd like to address, which is the baby blues, because symptoms of the baby blues and postpartum depression aren't that different. 
Um, so you would see feelings, you know, intense sadness, um, irritability, tearfulness, feelings of overwhelm, difficulties certainly maybe with sleeping or eating. One thing, you know, we kind of look out for as a screening question for moms is like when the baby's sleeping, are you able to sleep? Is she sleeping too much or not at all? Um, isolating from friends and family, having intrusive thoughts, um, which, you know, oftentimes are shame-filled thoughts. Um, I'm an awful mother. My baby doesn't like me. Um, worry about the baby. Something might happen to the baby. And, you know, those things can, you know, um, come up with baby blues. But what we see with the baby blues is that those get better over time. Typically within, you know, kind of 10 days to two weeks after the baby's born, those symptoms, it's not that women are feeling wonderful, but they don't get worse. Those things don't get worse. Um, with postpartum depression, those symptoms um, don't improve. Sometimes they get worse and they start to affect the woman's ability to, to function, right? Um, maybe she's able to still care for her baby, but she's not caring for herself. Um, so I hope that answered your question. Is that a, you know, yeah, so helpful. So, so helpful. And I think w the, the next natural thing it makes me think about is if I'm listening to this and I think, oh my gosh, I think my sister might have this or, you know, my best friend is going through this. How do you as the support person approach the mother who you think may be going through this? Because it seems like it's a pretty delicate topic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I would say kind of start general by just kind of asking like how she's doing. Because I think so many moms don't even get that question asked. They are like, how is your baby doing, right? How is the baby? But not how are you doing? How has motherhood been for you? It can be really stressful emotionally. I just wanted to check in, you know. Um, and then to offer, don't ask somebody like in that vulnerable position what they need. They might not even know. And this is for women that might not even have postpartum depression. Offer direct support. I'd like to bring you some food. I'd like to come over and just sit with you so that you could take a shower while the baby, I'll hold the baby or maybe the baby will be napping. Um, yeah. Yeah. Great. That's great advice. What is the impact? We'll stay with the, the postpartum depression. What's the impact on relationships in terms of, you talked about this isolation piece, but with their partners or with those around them, what would you see in somebody who was experiencing postpartum depression? How would they be in relationship with others? Yeah, I think that really kind of varies, but I think for couples, it's really stressful. So, you know, postpartum depression is certainly a maternal mental health concern that impacts the entire family system, especially, you know, in families where maybe there's also other children. And so I think it's really a tension in relationships. And I think partners oftentimes are so worried and they just want to make everything better. They want to fix it. Um, and at the same time, they're also exhausted. So they may also kind of have feelings of frustration or feelings of resentment that their partner is struggling in this way. Um, if they haven't heard of postpartum depression at all, they might just be really confused and not understand what's going on. Like, and that can come across then as judgmental, like, Oh, you just need to handle your stress better. You know, I don't understand what's so difficult about this. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine that that happens often or that they say, you know, this is what we've been planning for. This is what you wanted, or this is what we wanted. Um, you know, why aren't you happy? And I can totally. see how that, that keeps somebody in a hole. 
Um, and so I, I guess when I, as we're talking, my concern is how many women, I don't know if you know this or not, but actually do get treatment. You know, we don't really know, um, how many women receive treatment. And so that's something, what we do know is that uh, there are a lot of women that don't. And I would say because postpartum depression can come in many different you know, show up in many different ways. So in my experience, you know, women who after their first babies were born, maybe they had like slight postpartum depression or kind of moderate, kind of mustered through and felt miserable. And then they realized in their second pregnancy, maybe that it wasn't just um, that they were bad at motherhood or that it was stress, that it was PPD and they reach out for some help. Um, but we really don't know how many women are receiving treatment. Oh, gotcha. So you're maybe, maybe more likely with your second child to go, oh, okay, this, this maybe isn't normal. Yeah. I should get some help. Um, so what do you feel like people need to know around the whole maternal mental health process? Like define that and then give us, give us some nuggets on what do we need to know so that we are better as the person maybe who's going through it at getting the help that we need, but also the supports around them, how we can better understand what does maternal mental health actually mean? Yeah, that's a great question. So maternal mental health, you know, is this broad term that just refers to the mother's emotional well-being and psychological well-being during what we would call the perinatal period, which is prenatal and the postpartum period. And certainly when we talk about maternal mental health, we are talking about postpartum depression, right? But that's not the only um, maternal mental health concern. Um, there's also postpartum anxiety, um, you know, postpartum OCD. Um, you know, some women um, have bipolar disorder that was, you know, not diagnosed previously that uh, arises during the postpartum period. So when we talk about maternal mental health, we're really talking about all of those mental health concerns. Um, but I think the best thing, you know, that women can do and partners can do is to really educate themselves during the prenatal period about emotional wellness and tending to themselves. So being proactive um, and educating yeah. yourself. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what is, what do you consider the postpartum period from what, how, how many oh, months, how, how far out? Yeah. So the postpartum period, that's such a great question, Cheryl. It's really um, the first year after the baby's born. So can and it, it's so important. Yeah. Yeah. So could it be that, a woman has her baby, she brings her home, she's feeling fine, and then if this can hit you at month six or month nine? Absolutely. I mean, I think in my experience, you know, and I don't know kind of the research on this, but I would say as a clinician who's worked with women suffering from maternal mental health concerns for, you know, over a decade, oftentimes um, the symptoms of depression come on, I would say, within kind of the first three months. Um, or when there's a new stressor that pops up, returning to work, leaving the baby with a sitter for the first time, a new stress maybe with maybe partner's work has added travel, maybe somebody loses a job, maybe um, there's other kind of, you know, even having to move, you know, move to a different uh, house or something. Um, but certainly it can come up at any time during that period because the body still really is recovering from um, the birth process and pregnancy. That is, I mean, I think it's fascinating. And I, as, as somebody who's in mental health, but also someone who has had three children, there's a lot of this that, you know, I didn't 
I didn't even know. Why do you think that we don't talk about this more? I think that we don't, I mean, I think people are starting to talk about it more than they used to, but I think that there's still so much shame surrounding mental health and motherhood. I think it's so shame-filled, you know? What mother wants to face that she's having mental health concerns at a time when she's supposed to be caring for someone else? I think it's this setup of, you know, like I say in my groups, you oftentimes feel like an amateur because you haven't done it before, but everyone expects you to be an expert. And when you face that cultural pressure, it's really hard not to let denial get in the way of what you need. Yeah. I mean, what you just said is amazing. You, you go from being, you're really an amateur, but you're expected to be an expert, right? Everybody says, nobody knows your baby more than you do. You're mm -hmm. the expert mm -hmm. on your baby. So yeah. So it's, so this is really the not talking about it is rooted in shame. And like, feeling also like everybody else is doing it better. That's what I hear from a lot of moms. They feel like everybody else has it down perfectly, you know? Yeah. Um, which only is another setup to have even more kind of judgments towards the self or more kind of, you know, as you know, kind of with right cognitive kind of, you know, thought traps kind of going to this all or nothing thinking. Yeah. And my guess around that thought of other moms, you know, they know what they're doing. They're so much better at this than me. I, I'm going to venture to say that that's a thought that can happen even if you're not experiencing postpartum depression, but you're just in that whole postpartum period where you're just insecure and you're clumsy and maybe your milk hasn't come in and there's lactation issues. And, you know, there's a whole host of issues that you're constantly sort of reminded, oh yeah, actually I'm really not that great at this but other mm -hmm. people are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I guess the one thing that I'd like to say, I mean, I think that parenting, and I'm sure you see this as a child psychologist and somebody who's written a great book about mommy burnout and is addressing stress in motherhood. Parenting culture has changed so much. And I think for many people, they equate child rearing as being a verb. Parenting. Mm -hmm. It's something we're always doing. And I think we're in such an achievement-oriented culture that it's very shocking for people when you do not have that feeling of achievement in the, you know, with parenthood. Um, you want something to be predictable that's entirely unpredictable. And I think that throws people really emotionally off course. I think we really need to talk about that so people know it's situational. It's not that they're incompetent, right? Right. I mean, as you're saying that, I'm thinking, yeah, postpartum group support groups are absolutely necessary, needed, want to see that grow. But the whole you know, before you're getting even pregnant, the prepartum, you know, just knowing these things, having someone overtly say that to you, you know, parenting, we use it as a verb and it, it, we think it's something that we're always in process of doing and we've really changed. I think that information is so lacking for just women in general. Absolutely. You know, and it's something that I think should be in prenatal classes for women and their partners because it kind of gives a framework from which to um, understand how parenthood affects people today, right, in this kind of 
time that we're in. Right, today. That's that is the key because I think, you know, when when I was writing Mommy Burnout and thinking about these women, a lot of times what I hear still is that women don't feel like they can identify with their own mothers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so then it becomes this whole like, oh, that's ancient or you don't know and you don't understand what it's like today and they don't really quite understand what it's like today, but there are some things that haven't changed, right? Child infant development hasn't changed. Right. And so mm-hmm. there's some things that, um, that I wish we could, we could sort of have a, a marriage of no, actually the women before us have a lot of wisdom that's timeless and that they can share. And then there are unique styles, cultural ones that we have shifted in terms of what parenting today means. And so to be able to have sort of a course or information about both of them for me seems like part of the solution or, or could be really helpful. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, Dr. Fraga, I could talk to you all day about this. This was really enlightening for me, and I feel really proud that we're talking about this because I know that there are probably hundreds of thousands of women who could benefit from really just hearing this conversation, and, and I hope that they got some tips on things that they can do. And is there anything else you want to add or say before we wrap up today? I mean, I guess the only other thing that I'd like to say that I think is so important to kind of just relay to moms, if they are struggling, they're not alone and it is never their fault. You know, I think there's so much judgment, you know, um, support is out there um, and it helps. So. Yes. And I will say, I mean, look at this. I have an entire page full of notes. <laughs> um, what I, what I want what I want to end with saying what you just said is support is out there. And so if you're listening and maybe you are living in a small town or you don't have a lot of resources around you, support can just mean talk to your neighbor, talk to the, talk to your a family member, just be talking. I feel like if you don't have professional help around you, it's okay. Just keep talking. Do you agree? I think that's so important to tap into the community that you're already a part of. And then also for women to know that certainly organizations like Postpartum Support International, they have um, volunteers in all states that can help women find support in their area. And also there's a rise, right, of online support groups, even through Facebook. So there are other ways to connect in our kind of, you know, very fast paced um, digital age, but really um, don't keep your story to yourself because when that happens, um, our fiction becomes a fact. So, Don't keep your story to yourself. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Julie Fraga, for sharing all of your wisdom, and thank you for the good work that you do. Okay, thanks so much for having me on your show. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.